All right. Well, I just want to kind of throw out a few questions to see if anybody either knows this from their own personal study or remembers it from any of the things we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Uh, first of all, who is the primary um, patristic and uh, post-Nicene father, if you want to put it in formal terms, uh, that we have been studying for the last several weeks? And make sure you pronounce the name correctly. Augustine. Augustine, anathema. Yeah, Augustine, to, to say it the way they say it in heaven, as that journal, <laughs> that journal article that I read uh, to introduce this whole study. <laughs> yeah, we've been looking at Augustine, and of course, um, you know, you could, the, the, a study of Augustine and his writings and his contribution to church history and really to uh, doctrinal formulation and understanding of particularly the doctrines of grace and salvation, uh, the sovereignty of God and salvation, these things. Um, prolific in his contribution uh, on its own. But there was also a, a sort of a controversial uh, period that uh, Augustine was involved in, involving another person from church history. And who would that be? Pelagius. Pelagius. Now, Pelagius, what, what, do you remember anything about Pelagianism? Well, yeah, works-based. So, so Pelagius, um, Pelagius did not believe in original sin. You kind of have to start there with Pelagius. That Pelagius, that's right. Pelagius believed that sin, as it propagated throughout human history, was propagated as a result of man's imitation of Adam's sin, not that Adam's sin. Was endem- has become endemic to man by nature. In other words, the sin of Adam created a corrupt state for man and his progeny going forward. So, so Pelagius did not believe that man was under the curse, if you will, in that way, based upon the passing on of Adam's state of sin after the fall. So he believed that man was created in a neutral state. Even after the fall, that man was created with no will bent in one direction or the other. In other words, he adopted a position about the nature of man that, had, that man is created with a truly autonomous free will. And that man chooses out of that truly autonomous free will whether to do good or to do bad. And he would even acknowledge that because the nature of sin in humanity and throughout history is so prolific, that even in spite of his belief about the neutral posture of man's will at the time of his creation is is not bent towards sin, the actual effects of man's sin give that indication. So it looks like man has a sin nature, that he's created it with a sin nature, but but not, not truly. And really, uh, his, his, one of his motivations, I guess, if you want to call it that, one of his presuppositions was, is that, that this is necessary because if, if it was otherwise or if it was more akin to what Augustine taught in that man was, man's will may be free, but it was free only to sin. That his nature, his, the core of who he was, at the source of his desires and his passions he was bent towards sin. 
So what he willed resulted in sin. His will, in other words, was not free in the sense that it was free from the confines of that sin nature. But Pelagius would argue that man was free, and this was necessary because you can't have an obligation placed upon man that he cannot fulfill. That would be unjust of God to do that. So in a sense, Pelagius was a defender, quote-unquote, of the justice of God, as though God needs that. But that, that was kind of the philosophical sort of underpinnings of Pelagius' view of original sin. Pelagius, though, if you, just, if you understand uh, kind of what was motivating him or really provoking him, he was, he was exercised by the rampant immorality amongst professing Christians, both in the church but also in the clergy, in the, in the, in the leadership of the church. So his, his grave concern was a, concern, was a moral concern. And in fact, his writings tend toward a very moralistic emphasis. Um, and, he was, and he was rightly concerned because there was a tremendous uh, degree of hypocrisy at that time in the church, as there is at all times, if we want to be honest, right? But in particular, it, it, t- it, had, a, it had a unique flavor because, as you recall, when Constantine uh, basically conquered uh, the Roman Empire and became the emperor and eventually opened up the doors for the church to be the, fa- the, 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 the Christian church to be the favored religion in the entire empire, the, everyone became a Christian, basically. Well, we know that that's not how that works, right, uh, in, in, in eternal transcendent terms. But it became civilly and economically advantageous to be a Christian, that the church itself became a hub of social and civic and economic in, interaction and even advancement, and that even the clergy and posts within the clergy and the hierarchy of the church became positions of tremendous power and influence and esteem. So it doesn't take much for us to think about how that could have a corrupting influence on people. If there's not genuine regeneration, a genuine new birth, and a true uh, indwelling of the Spirit that compels one to put off old things and put on new things, if there's not a truly born-again experience, someone becoming a new creation in Christ, then what you're going to have is a very externalized practice of religion, and in this case, of Christianity that became very much adorned with the pomp and circumstance of the Roman Empire, and in very much a civil, uh, self-motivated, self-centered kind of religious practice. Well, that became rampant, and so the excesses of immorality were significant as well, and it was of grave concern to Pelagius. So he was motivated by trying to call out the immorality uh, within the church. His his grave error, and, and, and really what he was what he was most exercised about was that this idea that people would claim the grace of God and their inability to you know, satisfy the expectations of the law, and so they appealed to the grace of God as you know, their cover for sin. And, and so it was, it was a reasonable concern for anyone who uh, would desire to, to 
seek faithfulness to the scriptures and to call people to that same like, uh, type of faithfulness. Uh, obviously, the, the grave error there is to kind of turn that into an outside-in kind of sanctification rather than an inside-out uh, kind of sanctification. And so, uh, like I said, he, he did not believe in original sin. Uh, he believed that man's will was truly free. Um, he said that sin is not born with man, but is committed afterwards by man. It is not the fault of nature, but of free will. So that's kind of the essence of his, his understanding of sin and free will. Um, he, he, he believed that the grace of God was basically that which, first of all, granted man to be created, and then granted him to be created with this free will. So that was an element of God's grace. That free will gave him the ability to choose good and choose God, and that was a gift of God's grace. It had that the grace of God gave enablement toward toward God that man could then exercise in the free will that God graciously gave him. But as you can see, it centers in the man himself, that salvation is centered fully in man himself, that once he is created in this neutral state, then it's really up to him to choose what is good, and just the mere fact that God gave him that ability, that is the grace of God. And of course, as we know, Augustine, but maybe more importantly, we should say Scripture, would would articulate something very different about the grace of God and the nature of the grace of God and the extent to which God's grace is given to man and what God's grace provides for. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more going forward. So here we have, here we have this conflict between Augustine and Pelagius. And Augustine, obviously, based upon his own experience of the, the, the struggles that he had with temptation and sensuality and lust, I mean, he was... He was a man that lived a life of, of sensuality long before he became a faithful follower of Christ. And he succumbed to the temptations of the flesh. He knew them very, very well. And, and so he understood this, this issue of desires. So in, 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 in the, the, the captivating nature of sinful desire and how it held sway over him and over his will. And he, and he wrestled with that significantly. And then he also realized that it was only of God and only of grace that God reached down and reached in and transformed him at the very point of his desires. That he went from having a will and a, and a, and a desire that was bent toward finding, aimlessly really, trying to find joy and satisfaction in fulfilling the desires of the flesh, to now his joy and his delight being found in God and in God alone. That God himself was the termination point of all his desires and all of his joy. It was like a radical recognition of the amazing, all of grace, saving work of God sovereignly, apart from his ability to do anything. All he was able to do was to live under the bondage of his captive will, and it was captive to sin. So Augustine sort of articulates this uh, prolifically um, bo- uh, from Scripture and from, from his own experience of grace. And I've said this multiple times before, but, but all of us are saved like the Apostle Paul was saved. 
right? We have to come to a place where we are essentially thrown from a horse by a blinding light. Even though that may not literally be what happens, that is what happens spiritually. We come before a holy God and we are completely shredded by our unworthiness and our sin in the face of that holiness, and then we are completely overwhelmed by the kindness and grace of God to save us. So that the rest of our days, we're living in the light and in the joy of that sovereign work of God's grace. We're just working out that that wonder and that tremendous gift of God's grace by the power of His Spirit and through the sanctifying work of His Word. Well, so you have these two different, very, very different views. You have the Pelagian view, which centers very much on the will of man, the freedom of man's will. And you have the Augustine or Augustinian view that centers on the sovereign work of God in, in, in doing a deep internal work that only he can do. Reaching to a place in the, in the heart and will of man that only God can reach into. So how do you solve this dilemma? Well, I have good news for you. Scientists probe human nature and discover we are good after all. All this time, you know, we're bantering back and forth over these philosophies, and we should have been turning to science all along. This is from an article from Scientific American from November 20th, 2012. When it really comes down to it, when the chips are down and the lights are off, are we naturally good? That is, are we predisposed to act cooperatively to help others even when it costs us? Or are we in our hearts selfish creatures? This fundamental question about human nature has long provided fodder for discussion. Augustine's doctrine of original sin proclaimed that all people were born broken and selfish, saved only through the power of divine intervention. Hobbes, too, argued that humans were savagely self-centered. However, he held that salvation came not through the divine, but through the social contract of civil law. On the other hand, philosophers such as Rousseau argued that people were born good, instinctively concerned with the welfare of others. More recently, these questions about human nature, selfishness and cooperation, defection and collaboration, have been brought to the public eye by game shows such as Survivor and the UK's Golden Balls which tests the balance between selfishness and cooperation by pitting the strength of interpersonal bonds against the desire for large sums of money. But listen to this. Even the most compelling televised collisions between selfishness and cooperation provide nothing but anecdotal evidence. And even the most eloquent philosophical arguments mean nothing without empirical data. Just so you understand, philosophical arguments include Scripture, include the writings of Augustine. These are philosophical arguments. And they, they come up short. They mean nothing without empirical da- data because obviously science is where truth is found. Right? A new set of studies provides compelling data allowing us to analyze human nature not through a philosopher's kaleidoscope or a TV producer's camera but through the clear lens of science. So science is going to give us a clear lens into the true nature of man. I mean, where have these guys been all our lives? I mean, just could have saved a lot of debate back in the 4th century, right? In 5th century. That's right. 
These studies were, listen, the clear lens of science. This is what cracks me up. So I'm just going to fast forward a little bit here. It talks about these, these philosophical, you know, uh, anecdotes and these TV shows that pit one against the other to try to prove this case out. They're just, they're, they're insignificant. They don't have meaning without empirical data. And now, through these studies, we have the clear lens of science. But I'm just going to fast forward just for a second so you can understand how funny this is to me. You've got, you know, when it gets toward conclusions, these results suggest that our full first impulse is to cooperate. They suggest it. So the clarity is that there's something that is suggested. Cooperation, this suggests that cooperation is the intuitive response only for those who routinely engage in interactions where this behavior is rewarded, that human goodness may result from the acquisition of a regular rewarded trait. Although no single set of studies can provide a definitive answer, no matter how many experiments were conducted or participants were involved, this research suggests our intuitive responses or first instincts tend to lead to cooperation rather than selfishness. They, they conducted these studies to try to test people's responses, their instinctive or intuitive responses around cooperation. They did these games with people to test these responses, and they tried to say that they, they, used, they used various times of you know, instinctive response in a short period of time versus a reflective response over a long period of time, and the reflective response, when they had to really think about it, often tended more towards self-centeredness, but the instinctive response, had, have, having to be decided upon in a short period of time, tended toward more cooperation. So, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So are you, I mean, so you get to the conclusion, although this evidence does not definitively solve the puzzle of human nature, wait a second, the clear lens of science, what happened? Last paragraph, although this evidence does not definitively solve the puzzle of human nature, it does give us evidence we may use to solve this puzzle for ourselves. And our solutions will likely vary according to how we define human nature. Crystal clear, right? We now have our marching orders. We know exactly how to understand human nature and how to respond to one another, right? We've got it all clear. It just cracks me up the way that these people, they, 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 they do not even recognize the absurdity of their own arguments. It's like, it's like you, just, you just did it for me. I mean, it took me five minutes to highlight these things. It's just crazy. So we have this, we have this tension, and, and as you know, this is not something that is confined to the 4th and 5th century, right? This tension, this debate, this challenge goes on and on and on. In fact, recent polls indicate that 77% of evangelicals today believe that human beings are basically good. 77%. 84% of these conservative Protestants believe that in salvation, God helps those who help themselves. 77% men's basically good. 84% of those believe that salvation is characterized by God helping those who help themselves. Cameron Butel, in in an article on Grace to You blog, says this, Pelagius still stalks the hallways of government, higher education, and the mainstream media. Most foreign policy disasters are connected to the naive assumption that people are basically good. Welfare programs flounder because of beneficiaries who prefer to extort the system rather than behave ethically. 
Psychologists continue to exclude the possibility of a sinful nature from their study of the human experience. Behavioral experts relentlessly try to solve bad behavior with better education. And society at large is now burdened with a younger generation that identifies as victims rather than perpetrators, refusing to be held accountable for its actions. He goes on to talk about this, the impact of this in parenting and how parents, though they should be able to see this clearly, the nature of man revealed in their children from the earliest stages of their opportunity to do something on their own, still persist in believing that their children are basically good and conduct parenting accordingly. So, we grow up in a society where we believe that we're essentially good, and so the bad things that are happening around us and the bad things that we find ourselves involved in are circumstances of our environment. They are conditions that we have seen modeled before us. There's some confluence of circumstances that really have nothing to do with our own nature, our own fallenness, something within ourselves. So this issue is something that is persistent even today, and it persists in churches. As I said from the statistics I shared earlier, it persists in in the church extensively. In, In terms of church methodology and church practice, this lies at the core of much of what is done because so much emphasis is placed upon how you articulate a message so that you don't cause unnecessary offense to the hearer. In other words, people's salvation hinges upon my ability to craftily and cleverly articulate a message in such a way that it appeals to you. And it doesn't cause you any kind of offense. It doesn't offend your sensibilities about you know, sin and these kinds of nasty things. Right? I mean, we're talking like it, it is pervasive. Massive, massive churches across the spectrum of evangelicalism, from the charismatic movement to what you would consider to be more conservative, suburban, Americanized Christianity. It runs the gamut. This, this unbiblical understanding of the nature of man and the nature of sin and the true nature of man's will as it's captive to sin. So then you have Scripture. That would be a good starting point, would it not? We talked about this. I invite you to turn quickly to Romans chapter 5. We're going to spend just a minute here, and then I'm going to have you turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. But just to kind of help us really reaffirm what I'm sure most of you or all of you know to be true, you have in Romans really a doctrinal treatise of the Apostle Paul. This is not one of the epistles that he wrote to, to a church that he had visited, that he had spent time at, that he had ministered among. This is a church that he wrote to prior to him ever going there. It's a church that had tremendous influence because of its location in the capital of the empire. Um, and really, so this, this Romans stands as a, a very unique really doctrinal epistle. It's, it's about the, really a laying out of the, the gospel and all of its implications um, from, from a theological perspective. And he pulls in issues of Old Testament law, of grace, of, of substitutionary atonement, the, the sort of the judicial legal elements of being 
unrighteous and being made righteous, being declared righteous by, by God's grace and by, by God's kindness in Christ Jesus. But you see, throughout the first several chapters, the Apostle Paul, you know, sort of piling up this argument about the nature of man. And you have this familiar passage that we, we turn to for a lot of different reasons, and, and, and it serves a lot of different sort of theological purposes. Um, but Romans chapter 1, verse 18, about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's something innate in them that compels them to suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So this, uh, this goes right at the argument that Pelagius would make about, well, you can't have people be culpable for something that they can't possibly do. Well, no. His divine attributes have been made known, and they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up and the lust of their hearts, and on and on it goes. So you have this description of man and his corruption. There's unrighteousness that resides within him. He, the things that he can see and know about God, he suppresses. He suppresses that truth. He presses it down. So this is kind of the opening salvo here. You go to chapter 3, and you have this, this, this um, discussion, this argument that the Apostle Paul is making about the nature of the law, how the law of Moses sort of comes into play where it applies, where it doesn't apply. Uh, and really, the, the law is essentially something that points out sin. It just, it just enumerates sin for you. In other words, the law counts your sin. Sin reigns. The law just says, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. It puts a name to it. It identifies it explicitly. It does not produce it, in other words. Sin reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. He says, sin reigned and so did death. Death reigned as well. All you have to do is go back to the time before Noah and you see the the judgment that's rendered against man, that the thoughts and intentions of his heart were only evil continually. I mean, that language itself, even in English, is just like, how many waves of this can I put in a few short words to let you know the situation is dire and it's coming from the inside out? That's right. That's right. That's right. So the, so the Apostle Paul here is just saying, look, this is, this is pervasive. It, the, the law did not create this situation. It just revealed it more explicitly and more clearly. And, and then he, he goes on. He starts posing these questions. I, and he just sort of poses these questions and he answers them. It's really a, a, a wonderful way to, to kind of formulate an argument. But look in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9 talking about the Jews. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and they know, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So he just quotes litany after litany from the Old Testament, mostly from Psalms and a few, from a few other places. This is, this is man. This is the nature of man. Unrighteousness dwells within him. In spite of what God has revealed about his nature, he suppresses that truth and unrighteousness. He persists in his evil. God gives him over to this to, to perform greater acts of, of violation against the law of God. That God, he, he even invents new ways of evil and gives hearty approval to those who do them. I mean, just over and over and over again. And then you get to chapter 3, and he just pulls this stream of consciousness type of uh, uh, string together of Old Testament passages that just give vivid imagery to this fallen, corrupt nature of man. That's who he is. Then turn to chapter 5. After having this discussion about being justified by faith, this, you know, not of yourselves, that we are... We, are, uh, uh, we, we cannot save ourselves. We all fall short of the glory of God, as it says in chapter 3. Um, we've sinned and we fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So that you, your only hope is for God to do something that you can't do. But he then begins to, in chapter 5, he begins to get more specific. So it's almost like the funnel is a, a bit wide in the argument, and he's just kind of narrowing it down more and more and more, and now he's going to get very, very specific, particularly when you pick up chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, well, does that mean that the reason we are sinners is because we all sinned? Or is the reason that we sin because we're all sinners? It's because we're sinners. Go back, and there's the identification of who you are. The argument from the Pelagian view would be, well, it's imitation. You're a sinner because you sin. You didn't have to, but because you did sin, now you are. Too bad, so sad. See that subtle shift, right? For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. This is what I was talking about before. The law just enumerates it. It puts a very pointed finger on it. But sin was still there, and the law of God was still being broken. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So now he sets up Adam as a type of the one who was to come in Christ. And you'll notice in this, in this section that Christ is a type of Adam, but he also draws a distinction that he's not exactly like Adam. Okay, So you have to be careful to pay attention to what he's saying here. He says he was a type like the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses 
brought justification. So he's just kind of setting up the difference in the equation there, right? One, one resulting in condemnation of many, but the act of one man, uh, but in spite of the many trespasses, one man brought righteousness through Jesus Christ. So you have this, this setup here in, in Romans chapter 5, giving you a clear indication that Adam was representing mankind. And that Adam's sin resulted in mankind being brought under the curse of sin by nature. We can go to the Old Testament and we can pull up passages in Jeremiah, for example, about the nature of the heart being desperately wicked who can know it. Or in Psalms, we were conceived in sin, we were brought forth from our mother's womb in sin. I mean, there's places you can go to all over Scripture that identify the nature of man. The problem with man is not that he sins. It's that he is in sin, that he is a sinner. He is identified with Adam in sin, and death reigns in him as a result. Now, here is where I want to go. and I, this, I, Please forgive me. I'm not doing a careful exegesis of Romans chapter 5. I'm just trying to kind of survey it and put some thoughts in, into your mind about this, some, some scriptural reference points. Um, so, so please don't... Uh, Please forgive me if, if you feel like I'm kind of doing a cursory job here. I am kind of intentionally, but I don't intend to be uh, cavalier with the passage. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, though, because I want, I want us to think about this. And, and really, I, what I believe is at the core of, of what motivates this kind of dichotomy of viewpoint about the nature of man and the nature of grace and the nature of sovereign, God's sovereign work in salvation. I think that Ephesians puts it on bold display for us. And, and it's, it's one of those things that I, it, it amazes me how easy it is for, for many, many people, including myself for a long period of time in my own walk of faith, to miss this completely. I said this, I think, several weeks ago. You know, if I were to pull together a room of, say, 500 professing Christians who were part of that sample, which those statistics about 77% believe that man is essentially good, you know, just capture from that sample. And I were to ask the question, um, would you agree with the statement, the primary reason that Jesus died on the cross was to save you from your sins and to give you salvation so that you could have an abundant and fulfilling life? I would venture a guess that the percentages would be very, very high. People would say, yes, I would agree with that statement. When you read Ephesians chapter 1 as a starting point, I want you to, as I read this, I want you to just notice who is the reference point over and over and over again in terms of purpose, in terms of plan, in terms of will, in terms of result, over and over again. Ephesians chapter 1, I'll start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Yeah, see, like I said, it's about me. See that? Right there. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen. To put it in the vernacular of another uh, well-known pastor... I believe that you should follow Jesus because I believe that Jesus 
not only makes you your life better, but He makes you better at life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, uh, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Jesus will make your life better because He has blessed you. Well, let's read on. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Not my satisfaction in this life. So right away we see that there's something bigger going on here. There's something eternal and transcendent. It's something that took place before the foundation of the world. All I know is that even a concept of my life was not even on the radar before the foundation of the world. So why on earth would I somehow read that into the text? That somehow my purpose in life, my satisfaction in life, you know, my temporal joy, quote-unquote, in life, is at the heart and root of God's salvation work in Christ Jesus. This is something that transcends time and space. It's before the foundation of the world, and it is according to the purpose of His will. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is all about His plan, His purpose. Yes, He's doing this so that we will see it. But what happens is, is that man turns the attention on him, on himself. God did something great, yes, but he did it, and I'm the termination point of all his love and affection. I'm, I'm the termination point of his ultimate purpose in sending Christ to the cross. No. He did it so that you could see his purpose. So you could witness and glory in His kindness, in His grace. This all redounds back to the purpose and the will and the wisdom and the glory of God Himself. As I said in verse 7, In Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. He goes on, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Okay, now we're talking. I get an inheritance. Let's bring it home, right? In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Oh, there he goes again. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And again, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might have satisfaction and joy in this life. No. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. 
In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory... Now here's what Paul is praying for. He's praying that you and I and the Ephesians will see all of this. See the truth of it. And glory in the goodness of God and the grace of God rightly. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the workings of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Are we getting it? Salvation, a sovereign work of God that is calling us out of darkness into light, giving us eyes to see this great wonder of work that He has done and being able to grasp with wisdom and insight by the working of the Spirit and the truth of God's Word to see this plan of redemption that transcends time that we might redound to the glory of God. And in case you misread who this is about and where your stand is is in all of this, And you were dead, chapter 2, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and and, and, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich, in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, seated us, up with, him, seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Even the love, the genuine love that He lavished upon us in saving us, is oriented toward demonstrating the kindness of His grace so that we might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in Christ Jesus. That we might see it, and that we might understand it, and that we might show it forth. The immeasurable riches of His grace. I could go on. I mean, I, just, I get so excited when I read that. When we think about this, though, guys, here's the thing. What I love about the the Augustinian uh, premise, and particularly when you bring, bring it back, and I'm going to conclude with this, I've got to be quick. John Piper wrote extensively about Augustine, studied him extensively as, as well. And I love the way he kind of concludes his little biographical sketch of Augustine in helping us think about salvation rightly in a way that orients our minds and our hearts toward this kind of reality that we just read in Ephesians. 
He says it this way. He says, we need to rediscover Augustine's peculiar slant, a very biblical slant, on grace as the free gift of sovereign joy in God that frees us from the bondage of sin. We need to rethink our Reformed doctrine of salvation so that every limb and every branch in the tree is coursing with the sap of Augustinian delight. And then he says, think of, he calls us to think of the tulip of, of Reformed theology. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Here's how he says, here's, here's how he would like to recast that. Total depravity is not just badness, but blindness to beauty and deadness to joy. It's not that we're just dead in our sins. It's not that we're just bad and wicked and unrighteous. It's that we can't even see the wondrous, joyous person of Christ. We're dead to joy. Unconditional election means that the completeness of our joy in Jesus was planned before we ever existed. Limited atonement is the assurance that indestructible joy in God is infallibly secure for us by the blood of the covenant. Irresistible grace is the commitment and power of God's love to make sure we don't hold on to suicidal pleasures and to set us free by the sovereign power of superior delights. And perseverance of the saints is the almighty work of God to keep us through all affliction and suffering for an inheritance of pleasures at God's right hand forever. For the believer who truly understands the sovereign workings of God's grace, it not only enlivens us to true joy that terminates on God himself, but even as we have to live and operate and function in a fallen body, in a body that's both physically decaying and in the the flesh that holds on and grips us, and even though we are bumping into people who are of the same like kind, and that bumping into people causes turmoil and trial and suffering, all these things produce for us a world of surrounded by iniquity and trial and suffering, that in the midst of all that, how else can we have joy that surpasses knowledge, peace that surpasses understanding, unless we are understanding that God has saved us to know Him and understand His eternal purposes that transcend all of this. We're called to walk in that joy so that when people see us walking in a world that is plagued by misery and pain and death and self-satisfaction and disillusionment, they see light and life and joy, not because you're not suffering, but because you're counting it all joy as you face trials of many kinds by God's enabling power and by the vision that he's given you of his wondrous purpose. That's what Augustine contributed to us, giving us a sense of salvation unto joy in Christ. Let's pray.